Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. Um, I'll be reading those in a minute, um, and if you've, if you've been with us the past few weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been doing kind of a continuous story in Acts, but if you haven't been with us, you're jumping in in the middle of a particular story. Of course, the whole book of Acts is one story of the early church after Jesus went up into heaven and how the early church continued the work of Jesus and expanded the good news about him, about his death and resurrection, did works of healing and power, established new churches throughout the the world that was known to them around the Mediterranean. But this particular story at the end of Acts, um, that really the last third uh, of the book of Acts is the last quarter of the book of Acts is Paul trying to get to Rome. Paul had said as he was out going and establishing churches and strengthening them and preaching to them, he said, I know that I must go to Jerusalem and then I must go to Rome. And the problem was in Jerusalem, there were a whole bunch of people that did not like Paul. The Jewish establishment and the Jewish leaders, they were all stirred up against Paul because of his preaching the message of Jesus and his uh, reaching out to Gentiles and all these kinds of things. And Paul had been warned, you go to Jerusalem, you might get killed. So he goes to Jerusalem, and in fact, it's, it's trouble. There's a mob stirred up, stirred up, they try to attack Paul. The Roman soldiers have to come and rescue him. And then there's been this back and forth of Paul's, really his, his legal journey of, of defenses and appeals to different people. And last time, we saw Paul persevering in the midst of uncertainty, where he did everything right, but because the Roman governor Felix was just looking out for himself and did not seem to particularly care about true justice, he left Paul in prison for two years. And so we pick up now where Paul has been stuck in prison for two years. And so uh, we'll pick up there and see what happens next. There is a new governor in town And so that was the the end of chapter 24, is that Portius Festus has come to town. And so it gives us the question, well, what's going to happen to Paul now that Festus is here? So I'll pick up reading from Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong with the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Uh, we praise you for your word, and we thank you that you give it to us. We thank you that you worked through your servant Paul 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you had these words written down, that they could still be here for us today. And we pray now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you speak these words into our hearts this morning, that this would not merely be a story from the past, but truly the life-changing food for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I was thinking yesterday about Harry Potter. And I think about Harry Potter a lot, because I love Harry Potter. So, we'll just, we'll just be honest about that. But in, in the seventh Harry Potter, in the final book, uh, Harry, the hero, if you're, not, if you're not familiar with the story, or even if you don't just have it completely memorized, like, you know, everybody really should, but... Um, exactly, Sophia. Sophia gets it. Everybody should have it memorized. But in the seventh book, Harry, the, the hero, is on a quest. And Harry is on a quest to once and for all defeat the evil wizard Lord Voldemort, the greatest dark wizard of all time, who basically now has the whole wizarding world under his control. And there's just a small group of rebels fighting against him, fighting to defeat evil, fighting for good. And Harry and his friends, the way they've got to do it is they're out and they're trying to find these Horcruxes. And there's seven of them. And this gets a little weird if you're not familiar with the story, but the Horcruxes are little pieces of Voldemort's soul that he's put in places to preserve himself forever so that he cannot be killed. So they're out there trying to find these Horcruxes and destroy them. And that's, that's the quest. They got, there's seven of them. They gotta hunt them all down. They've got like four of them taken care of. Thank you for those who are taking care of the blowing table in the back. Um, so, they're on this quest for Horcruxes, and they're on the run, and along the way, they come across the legend of the Deathly Hallows. And the Deathly Hallows are these three items originating from Death himself that are a cloak of complete invisibility, a stone of resurrection that will bring back the dead, and a wand, the unbeatable wand. And as they learn more about these things, they find out, they, they realize, Harry realizes that he's actually got two out of the three. He hadn't even known about it, but he's already got the cloak, and he's got the stone, and he's out here trying to figure out how to kill Voldemort. And he's like, you know, if I had an unbeatable wand, that would really help for a wizard. That's what they do. They use wands. So now he's got this dilemma. Do I go and seek the elder wand, the unbeatable wand, the wand of power, to be the way to defeat Voldemort? Or do I continue on my uncertain quest of chasing down the Horcruxes, the quest that was given to him by the headmaster Dumbledore, who before he died said, Harry, this is what you gotta do. You gotta go take out the Horcruxes. And he's wrestling and he's struggling and he's not sure what to do. And ultimately, and there's, there's this dramatic scene where Harry decides he has to make the decision. He knows Voldemort is also racing for this unbeatable wand. And Harry says, no. I'm going to go after the Horcruxes. I'm going to get, let, let the tool, the wand of power go. I'm going to let Voldemort get that. I'm going to continue my task that is clearly in front of me 
to get the Horcruxes. And when he explains all this to his friends, Ron and Hermione, which is after the fact, Voldemort's already got the wand and he's telling them why he decided to go after the Horcruxes. And they're shocked. They're like, you knew where it was and you didn't go for it? He says, no, this is, this is just the right thing to do. In the midst of confusion and turmoil and uncertainty, Harry had to make a choice. He had to make a choice to follow the path that he had been set on, the path that Dumbledore had given him, even though it was not at all clear how it was going to work out. But he knew that what was right was to keep pursuing the Horcruxes and to resist the temptation of the power of the Deathly Hallows. What does this have to do with Paul? It may be unclear. I may have just gotten too excited about Harry Potter here. But, but here's the connection. Paul here is stuck in prison. Paul has a quest too. Paul is supposed to get to Rome. But it is not clear from Acts that Paul has any idea how he is going to get to Rome. And so all Paul can do here is to rightly play his part in the story. While he is being pursued and attacked by enemy forces that want to get him. Do you see all that's going on? You've got the Jews laying a trap for him again. The Jewish leaders, they didn't, they didn't get him arrested. They didn't, they didn't get what they wanted from Felix. But Paul is still in prison, so that's something. The new governor, Festus, comes into town. He goes to visit with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And they're like, hey, Festus, you've got this guy, Paul. Bring him down to Jerusalem. We, he's, he's, a, he's a criminal. We want to put him on trial because they're going to ambush him. Now, Festus, in some ways, seems like a pretty good guy. He's like, nope, I'm going to go up to Caesarea. You, you come there. He's there. I'll go there. We'll all be there in Caesarea. But Festus isn't a great guy either. Like, Paul is completely innocent. Festus should just let him go. And instead, you see that killer phrase that also was said about Felix in the previous chapter. Uh, in verse uh, 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem? I mean, he already had Paul in front of him. There was no reason to do that. Festus is not, like, he's all right, but he's no great hero protector here either. So Paul's got, he's got enemies. He's got kind of help from the Roman system because he's a Roman citizen, but, but not really completely. What's he going to do? But what we see here is that what Paul does is Paul knows how to play his part in the story. He doesn't know how the story's all going to work out. He just goes to play his part. In the same way that Harry was faced with this choice of what's the best way? What, where is the power going to come from? How can I make this work? And ultimately, Harry said, I just have to do the task that I was given. I was given the task of finding horcruxes. I'm going to go find horcruxes. And Paul says, I'm going to play my part. I'm going to keep my eyes focused on God. I'm going to use what he's given me. I'm going to use the rights that he's given me. And I'm going to get, let God work this out. Because the great truth that's behind all this is that God is the author of the story. And he can use whatever means he wants. He can use the oppression of evil people who are seeking to kill and destroy. He can use corrupt governments. He can use his own people. He can use whatever he wants to accomplish his own ends. So when we read Harry Potter, we can be excited because we see Harry making choices and we know that the author is going to make it all work out, especially if we've read the story before. When we're faced with difficulty and uncertainty in life, we can have that same kind of confidence that the author of all of life, the author of all of history is working out our stories 
And we just have to play our role in that story. And we can see here by looking at Paul's example what it looks like to faithfully take our place in the story. And we can see three elements of what Paul does, mostly coming from this climactic scene at the end after Festus asks him if he wants to go up to Jerusalem. He's like, no. And so first we see that Paul uses his rights. And we too can use our rights. He used his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And what did he use his rights for? He used his rights to pursue justice. He said, look, do what is right. It's not right for me to go to Jerusalem. So we too, we can use our rights to pursue justice, but always for the sake of mission. Paul wanted to get to Rome, and this turned out to be a way to get to Rome. So we use our rights to pursue justice for the sake of mission. First, his rights. This is what we see, the, the great, the, the climax here in verse 11. I appeal to Caesar. This was the right of every Roman citizen in judicial proceedings. They had a fairly advanced judicial system. And so Roman citizens, which were somewhat rare throughout the empire, certainly not everybody was a citizen, but Paul was. He's already asserted that right to avoid being beaten in Jerusalem by the Roman soldiers. And now he has the right to appeal to Caesar. And, and Festus doesn't really have that much choice in the matter. This is Paul's right as a citizen. And so Paul exercises that right. And what's interesting here is we don't really know what's going on in Paul's head. Acts doesn't tell us. Acts, we don't know for sure whether Paul had this worked out of like, hey, if I appeal to Caesar, I'll get to go to Rome and preach the gospel there. And that's what I'm trying to do. Maybe he knew that. Maybe he knew there was an ambush on the way to Jerusalem. In any case, he knew he, would, he didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. He was done there. He had been there. And he's, he may well just be asserting his rights here for his own protection. Time and again in Acts, we see Paul doing this, using his rights as a Roman citizen. And so we can legitimately learn the lesson from this that we too can use all the rights and opportunities that God has given us. And so the question from this, as we seek to play our part in the story, the question for us becomes then, what has God given me that I can use for my, for my own protection, for the good of others, for whatever cause? What has God given me? And it's, it's most natural and obvious here to think in terms of political rights, since that's what Paul is using. We can think in terms of voting, in terms of petitioning the government, all the rights that we have as citizens in the United States, and that's good and valid. But that's not the only kind of rights and powers that God has given us to use. We can think about power in other ways as well. Privilege, wealth, opportunities. My, uh, my grandfather was a small town Southern Presbyterian pastor in Texas uh, in the 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement. And so he was not a man of any great significance. He was just a small town Presbyterian pastor in Kingsville, Texas. Of course, all of our Navy pilots here are very familiar with Kingsville. Um, and so uh, there, there's a naval air station there. But in, in the 60s, and this was a time of civil rights, a time of pushing for integration, of being able to get people rights to eat and drink in different establishments, to stay in hotels and that kind of thing. And my grandfather, uh, he was good friends with a barber in town, a black barber in town named Mr. Anderson. And Mr. Anderson would, um, he, he had the barbershop. Everybody liked him. He was a great guy. 
And so he was, my grandfather was very gregarious. He was friends with him. He was also friends with some of the more influential people in town, the captain of the Naval Air Station, the president of the college, there's a branch of Texas A&M in Kingsville, the, the head of the, what would become ExxonMobil, the oil company. And so when they would hear about a restaurant that was not willing to serve black people, typically sailors or college students who were not being served at these restaurants, my grandfather would connect people together and he would get some of these important people, the captain and the head of the, of the oil company and the president of the college, and then he would get Mr. Anderson, the barber, and they would all go together to dinner at the restaurant. And of course, when they walk into this restaurant with, all, with, with these important people, the owner of the restaurant is not going to turn them away, even though there's a black man in the party. And so then they sit down and enjoy their meal, and the restaurant owners can see, you know what? This wasn't so bad. This wasn't terrifying. This was just fine. And then afterwards, after they've come and kind of gracious, they didn't say anything. They just came and had their meal and sat down. They, they would say to them things like, you know, just so you know, like this, this is going to happen again. You are going to serve black people here. And if you don't, say the captain would say, then I will tell the sailors that this is off limits, that they may not come to this establishment. So here we have a small, small town Presbyterian pastor using his, not, not government rights in particular, not the right of protest or the right of petition or anything like that, but just the right of influence and position and people he knew and bringing them together to bring positive change for the sake of justice, for justice, justice for ourselves, justice for other people. This is what our rights are for. So the question for each of us then, as we think about our rights, as we think about what God is calling us to, is what is to kind of take stock, take inventory. What has God given us? What rights, what resources can we use? Can we use in love for others? Can we use for the good of God's kingdom in the world? Can we use for the sake of justice? Because that is, what is, that is at the center of God's heart. God is a God of justice, and we see that here, that Paul is using his rights for justice, for what is right. In verses, in verses 8, uh, 8, 9, 10, this is what Paul says. He defends himself. Neither against the law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And then in verse 11, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. This is the cry of justice. Paul's saying, look, if I've done wrong, if I'm guilty, fine. I will accept the punishment. But if I'm not guilty, then you cannot turn me over to the unjust. He is crying out for justice. And it is right for us to see that same cry. It is right for us to pursue justice for ourselves and for other people. To look at what is right and to do it. And it is so hard and complicated in the world to figure out sometimes what to do. Because it is so easy to get caught up in planning and schemes and what might happen. And say, if I do this, what will happen? What will be the best outcome? It's easy, like Harry, to look for the power. Where can we find power? How can we use it, even for a cause that we think is good in the end? But if we go there through some, through some shady means, we're getting off on the wrong track. And so we have, to, we have to consider, we have to look honestly and see 
What is it that God has put in front of us? What is the right thing to do? And again, we think when I say justice, because justice is close to the heart of God, we often, we think big picture, we think civil rights, we think government, we think protests. And again, all those things are right and good. But as I was reflecting upon this passage and what it means for many of us today, it's not always the great and big things, the great causes of humanity. Sometimes it's just the daily decisions of our lives. What does it mean to do what is right for, to, for ourselves and for other people? To do what is right. And the amazing thing is because God is the author, if we do what is right, he, he will work things out for our good in the end and for the advance of his kingdom. And I've seen this time and again in my own life. One of the times that stands out most clearly is one of the experiences that I am most grateful for is that right after I graduated from college, I spent three years teaching high school math in inner city Los Angeles in a school that was 100% economically depressed, free and reduced lunch, 100% Latino. Uh, it was a charter school trying to prepare students who would have otherwise gone to failing public schools to prepare them to be able to go to college. And I loved working there. And it opened up my eyes to the challenges of many people in the Hispanic community and the immigrant community, many of the challenges of the inner city. It opened up an opportunity then when I moved to Atlanta as a pastor for an after-school program working with Hispanic youth there. It also, because I had experience as a high school teacher, opened up a job opportunity years later teaching test prep that has continued to provide income for our family for the past 10 years. So all these things were opened up because I taught high school for three years in Los Angeles. But the funny thing is, I didn't choose that with an eye toward the future. I ended up teaching high school there because I needed a job. And at the time, I had just graduated from college. Suzanne and I were about to get married. Suzanne had just moved from the farm in Virginia to Los Angeles the year before. So she had made quite the transitional move. Now, I knew that I felt called to ministry, that I wanted to be a pastor. The like, logical next step was to go to seminary. But the seminary that I was planning to go to was in Boston. And so it would have been like from the farm in Virginia to Los Angeles for a year, and then quick across the country to Boston. And Suzanne was teaching at a school that was desperately high need, one of the 10 lowest performing schools in Los Angeles, and desperately needed teachers to make long-term commitments there. They had just incredible staff turnover. And they had placed her there. She didn't choose it. They just put her there. But they had asked her, could you make a multi-year commitment here? So we're sitting there and we're like, you know what? It doesn't necessarily make sense in the long-term strategic plan for our life. But the right thing to do is for you to have stability staying here in Los Angeles and for you to give stability to this school, to these kids who need it in South Central LA. And that decision that was just made on the basis of what is right and just right now for the people around me ended up paying incredible dividends throughout my life since. And that's just an example of how God can use, we don't have to figure out all the outcomes. We just do what is right in front of us. What is the obedient thing? What is right and just? And so the question for each of us to consider this morning is, where is God calling us to obey? What does that look like? Obedience is not always easy. It can be scary. It can be uncertain. There can be shortcuts that look far more tempting. We can get caught up in plans and planning and strategy and all these kinds of things. 
We can make all kinds of excuses for ourselves. But ultimately, if we find our hope and trust, our center in the author of the story, that God is the one in charge, God is a God of justice and righteousness, we can do the right and just thing day in, day out, and trust God to take care of the rest of the path. And he's always faithful. Because God, when we use our rights and our power and our privilege for the sake of justice and righteousness, then God can turn all that and use it for the sake of his mission. And that's ultimately what we see here. This story in Acts is all part of God's mission. He has told Paul that Paul is to go to Rome. And so he uses Paul's assertion of his rights, Paul's assertion, uh, his seeking for justice to take Paul to Rome in a way that Paul wouldn't necessarily have been able to get there on his own. Paul did not have a lot of financial resources. He, there was no clear way for Paul to get to Rome. And so God uses Paul's rights as a Roman citizen and the Roman government and Roman government transports to now take Paul to Rome. And that will be the rest of Acts. We will see Paul's journey to Rome. Because wherever Paul goes, while he's asserting his rights, while he's doing it for the sake of justice, he has it in mind for the sake of God's mission. For the mission of spreading God's word to other people. Of spreading God's kingdom to other people. Of extending grace and love to more people who need it. In our house um, at night, uh, Suzanne reads to our older three boys. She reads different books to them even as they, they can certainly all read on their own. But she reads good books, good, important books to expand uh, their, their horizons and see different things. And re most recently, she read them The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, the story of Corey Ten Boom and her family in Holland in, during World War II, where they were part of the Dutch resistance and they hid Jews and protected them from the Nazis. Eventually, they got caught um, and they end up in German uh, prisoner camps, first in Holland and then moved to Germany and uh, it was Corey and her sister Betsy were always together through these, through these camps. And time and again, through this horrific imprisonment, this transfer from one camp to a worse camp to a worse camp, at every stage, Corey's sister Betsy just sees the opportunity before them. Even as they are in crisis, even as they are in trouble, even as they are faced with the threat of death, Betsy says, look, there are new people to share God's love with. And at every turn, they're carrying their Bible with them and they're keeping it safe and they're having Bible studies in the barracks and they're, having, and they're showing love to the other prisoners and they're praying for them, the prisoners and even for the guards. Betsy's love knows no bounds. She seems to have no fear. She, I asked Susanna, I said, is Betsy basically a perfect person? She was like, well, I mean, nobody's perfect, but, but she's pretty close because her heart was focused on God's mission. And so everywhere she went, she saw it as an opportunity for mission. She saw it as an opportunity to expand the love of God. And she had this vision of what God was doing and how his kingdom was, was advancing. And so that is the call for each of us to lift up our eyes to a greater cause. When we get caught up in the trials of this world, the struggles that we find ourselves in, we can be caught up in something greater and it is such a more exciting ride to set our eyes on what God is doing, trusting the author of the story to work things out. So this morning, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe in God, 
I'm putting before you the offer of something better, something greater. Something, you can be a part of something big. The mission of God in this world. And all you have to do is look to play your part. Use the rights and the privileges that God has given you for the sake of justice and righteousness and love for others. And trust the author of, his story, of the story to work all this out. If you're not a Christian, that looks like putting your faith in Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I, just, I need you to forgive my sins. I, I believe that you died on the cross, that you will forgive my sins. I need you to give me grace and hope for the day to come. If you are a Christian, it's a lot the same. Daily coming back to him, say, Jesus, forgive my sins. Yes, I have failed. Yes, I have looked my own way. I want to do what is right this morning. And then asking him, God, how can I obey you today? What is the right thing to do in each situation? What have you put in front of me? And then just as, as J.K. Rowling authors the Harry Potter series so that as he pursues the horcruxes, he ends up collecting all of the hallows. And he ends up conquering Voldemort, the embodiment of death itself, through his own act of self-sacrifice. And the author works this all out. In the same ways in our own lives, we trust the author of all things, the creator of all things, that he will work this out for his own glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us. We just have to play our part in the story. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the, the witness of Paul and his example to us. We pray that we too may take our place in your story, trusting you as the author of this story. May we do what is right and just in front of us each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.